Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm Lee Rawls, and today my guest is Brooke Lively of Cathedral Capital, author of the book, From Panic to Profit, How Six Key Numbers Can Make a Six-Figure Difference in Your Law Firm. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, I do have to say, uh, at the ABA Journal, one of the biggest requests we always get is from our lawyer readers saying, help, I went to law school, and now I'm trying to run my own firm, but they never taught me you know, how to run a business. Please give us financial advice. Is that really what you see with your clients who are attorneys? It really is. And if you look at things like the 2019 Legal Trends Report, the numbers in there about attorneys are absolutely staggering. 69% of attorneys do not feel qualified to run their business or don't feel like they have the knowledge to run their business. And that really is kind of a shortfall that I see in law school. And speaking of the legal industry, are there needs there or things specific to the legal industry that you feel really separates it from other business? Or is there really kind of a through line? There really is a through line. I think that there are two types of businesses in the world. And Lee, I'm I'm, going to need you to just hold on to your chair for a moment because I'm going to say something that freaks (laughs) you out. I know it. It's coming. There are two types of businesses. There are manufacturing businesses and there are businesses that work in product. And then there are businesses that run on the billable hour. Law firms, doctors, dentists, chiropractors, marketing, all of those things run on some version of the billable hour because what you're selling is people's intellectual capital. Rather than a physical product. Correct. All right. Well, you promise in the headline of the book that uh, there are six key numbers lawyers can use to really get a better picture of what their firm is doing and make a difference in the way they're able to bring in money. And I want to go to the very first key number. Uh, I think that you probably put these in this order for a reason. So let's start out with number one, cash. Yes, cash. So when we look at a business, we actually see six, we divide your business into six areas. And the first one is cash. And within each area, there are numerous numbers that you could look at. But we want to find the one that makes the biggest impact. And in that, it is your cash flow forecast. So it is being able to look six to eight weeks ahead and knowing how much cash you're going to have at the end of each of those six to eight weeks. And what I really liked about your framing of this in the book was you know, you said, let's say you want to take a break, you want to take a vacation, you want to be off for maybe even three weeks and really let yourself relax. Do you know if you can do that? And what I liked about that was you really seem to be trying to help people not only just (laughs) have a business that's doing better, but sleep at night because they know what's going on in their own business. Yeah, I talk about the fear factor a lot of owning a business. People generally start their businesses, and lawyers are no different because they're passionate about something. So here you are, you're a lawyer, you did not get any business training in law school, and all of a sudden you own your own firm, and that is scary. And it's very isolating because attorneys have been taught that they're supposed to be the expert. So here they are in an environment where they don't know what to do. I mean, you wake up in the middle of the night worrying. So when I help law firms, I want the owners to feel confident, 
to feel good, to be able to make data-driven decisions. Because what we know about data-driven decisions is you only make them once, as opposed to an emotional decision that you make, and then you question, and then you wake up at 3 a.m., and then you change your mind, and then you do something else, and it takes you weeks to actually make the decision. Getting back to the cash number, you mentioned the cash flow forecast. So what all would that include if, if I am the proprietor of a small law firm? So you're always going to want to start with your cash balance, which is not, you know, that little fabulous app that you have on your phone that tells you how much cash you have in the bank? I do. And you're about to talk about the float, right? The dreaded float? I am going to talk about the dreaded float. That is not actually your cash balance. Your cash balance is going to come from whatever bookkeeping system you use. Most small law firms use QuickBooks. It works really well. What QuickBooks does is it gives you your balance if everything had cleared. All those ACH debits, all the deposits, all the checks you have outstanding. So that's really the cash balance that you want to start with. And then you want to add any AR that you know you're going to collect. You want to add the cash that you know you're going to deposit from the work being done, from your whip, from your work in progress. And every law firm's different. We definitely advocate for a certain way of collecting money, which is described in detail in the book, where we know that we are going to get a deposit of 90% of what we bill within 10 days of billing it. So you add all of those in, that gives you the cash that you have, and then you subtract out your recurring expenses, payroll, rent, all of that, and extraordinary expenses. You have a new employee coming on and you need to get them a computer, and that's going to give you your ending balance. You mentioned collecting bills, and it does seem like a lot of attorneys struggle with this. And you said something pretty simple in the book that you know, as soon as I read it, I was like, you know what, this this does make sense to me emotionally, which is the longer you go without collecting your money, the less likely you are to ever collect that money. Yeah, think of AR like rotting fruit. Every day that goes by, you're going to get less and less benefit from it. So the faster you collect it, the better. It's something like you only collect 10% after 90 days. It's It's sad. Attorneys work really hard for their clients, and they spend the time, and if we're lucky, they bill the time. You might as well get paid for it. There's nothing wrong with that. Speaking of getting paid for something, this is a really good segue into key number number two, ideal ratios. And this deals with owner compensation of a law firm. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. The question I get asked most often is, how much should I be spending on people, marketing, rent, office supplies, whatever the answer is? And, and while I can give you answers to each of those, I feel like the bottom question, the real question is, how much should I be spending on those other things so that I take home the right amount? So we really concentrate on owner compensation. How much is the owner taking home? And we all know... You take home money in different ways when you own your own firm. Some of it you get in payroll, some of it you get in draws, and some of the owner benefit is actually the fact that your cell phone gets paid and, I don't know, your children's school supplies are running through the, the firm. 
everybody runs some stuff through their firm. It's just the way it happens. So we really want to make sure that owners are being fairly compensated for the risk they're taking because you do take on risk. When you hire an employee, their payroll costs become your responsibility. And you bring up sort of a rule of thirds being a a good general, although you do need to look at everyone's individual circumstances. One of the things that I liked was when you talked about the definitions of profit and that profit can have a different definition. Could you talk a little bit about that? Let's start with the rule of thirds really quickly because it's very simple. One third goes to the people doing the work, one third goes to overhead, and one third should go to profit, which is the owner. That is simple and easy, and we, we love that. And how about when you talk about what the definition of profit is? You mentioned that you know, profit doesn't have to just mean cash or you know, fiscal money you're taking away. It's not. Profit comes in all different forms for different people because everyone has a different goal of what they want from their law firm. So profit could be dollars. Profit could be flexibility. So we had a law firm down in Austin And the owner wanted to be able to go to her children's swimming lessons on Wednesday mornings. Okay, great. We needed to design a law firm that allowed her to do that. We had another client in Florida that wanted to build a national name for herself. And she really wanted that that recognition and to try those big cases. Well, to do that, we needed to have her her law firm operate basically without her because she was all over the country. She was in DC, she was in LA, she was doing all these big cases. So you need to really figure out what you want your law firm to provide you. And everything that it gives you is a form of profit. The third number is production. And so what does production mean in what you, you know, you pointed out, this isn't a manufacturing business where, you know, you made 65 gigas. Great. That's what you made today. What does production mean when you you are a law firm looking at that as a key number? Well, you have to realize that as a law firm, you do actually have inventory. And your inventory are all the billable hours contained in your firm. So, Lee, if you have three attorneys working for you and you expect each of them to bill 100 hours a month, you have 300 hours of inventory. And we need to make sure that we are billing that inventory out, that we're using it. So the key number we look at is work in progress. How much work, how much billable work is getting done? Because this month's WIP is next month's revenue. And that also can bring us to number four, budget versus actual. And you say in the book that this is actually your very favorite number of the six. Why is that? Well, first of all, let's get really clear about the B word, budget. (laughs) I can't stand that word. Budgets are restrictive and yucky and, and nobody wants them. And they tell you what you can't do. We are big believers in profit plans because profit plans tell us how we're going to spend money to make more money and how much we're going to take home, how much profit we're going to have at the end. However, I have not convinced any of the major bookkeeping software companies to get on board with this, so they still call them (laughs) budgets. So 
The budget versus actual report is found in every bookkeeping solution. And what it does is it takes your your profit plan, your budget, which is the plan of what you want to happen in your business this year, and it sets it next to what actually happened. And it gives you the ability to get back on course. Did we make it? Did we not make it? Did we spend more in this category? And was that good or bad? If you're a trust and estate lawyer and all of a sudden you're spending a whole bunch on office supplies, that may tell you that you've moved a lot of new will packages through because those binders that you have to put together are really stinking expensive. If you're a different kind of firm and your office supplies are out of control, that may tell you, like a firm I know out in Oregon, that your office manager has bought enough paper clips to no lie last for 10 years. So <laughs> is it good or is it bad? If it's good, what is that behavior that created the good outcome? What is that behavior that created all the new cases? What is the behavior that got us where we are so that we can replicate that? And then we look at the things that were over or under that weren't positive. And we go and we find the root cause of that and fix that. One of the things I found fascinating was when you said being over your revenue goal is not always good. Could you talk about that? Because it seems pretty simple. Oh, I, I made more than I thought I would. How fantastic. But what's the pitfall there? The pitfall is, is those three attorneys that you have that are working 100 hours a month that are billing 100 hours a month are all of a sudden billing 130 or 150 hours a month. And they get a little cranky and bitter. And so it may be hard for you to retain employees, potentially. So then they quit. And when they quit, and you go from having three attorneys, and you're only really billing half time, and you lose two attorneys, now you've got one attorney, one and a half attorneys, that have to bill a whole lot of hours. So you end up with cranky clients, you blow deadlines, your SOLs are history, all you're doing is reacting to whoever's yelling loudest, whether that is one of the courts, or if it's a client. And really, at that point, you're just kind of, I don't know, putting out fires. And that's no way to practice law. I think that number five is the one that may make lawyers the most confused because they get a lot of pitches about it and they don't know how to necessarily interact or purchase these services. And that's number five, marketing and sales. Lawyers who are rainmakers are really looked at in the industry as, oh, you know, this is an incredible skill. But a lot of people went into this profession not because they had that rainmaker personality. A lot of people are really kind of introverted and, you know, just like loved the law, loved to read, loved to research. And now think, oh, do I have to go to cocktail parties? Oh, no. I dated one of those guys. He was a Supreme Court clerk. He had been a Supreme Court clerk. And I mean, he spent so much time in the law library. He practically smelled like books. Really sweet, really nice. I would take him to a cocktail party and he'd crater. Yeah, because it's scary. And what I liked about this chapter in your book was it helped you figure out how much time doing these sort of sales call type work is too much and how much is enough. So if you are that kind of personality type, you know, maybe it's much more reassuring to see that number and say, oh, 
okay, actually, I am being really scattershot. And this is how I drill down. How do you help attorneys do that? Well, I think the biggest thing you need to understand is starting from the beginning. You know, I meet attorneys and they're like, I have a 100% conversion rate or I have a 90% conversion rate. And you're like, yeah, once that person has been totally vetted and actually gets into a sales call with you. But do you realize that person has already made four conversions by the time they get to you? And I think it's those previous conversions that are so important. You know, the first conversion a client makes is when they decide to contact you. And when we're talking about a conversion, is that just like a step in your relationship? It's a decision. Every time a client makes a decision. So the first decision is to call you, right? The second decision actually you make, are they qualified or not? Are they the type of case that we take and can we handle it? You know, it doesn't do any good to get a DUI, potential DUI case in, if what you do is adoptions. You don't know how to handle it. It's not your kind of case. So are they qualified? Also in the are they qualified is how are they going to pay? And are you a, let's see, what's a really high-end restaurant that we can think of? Oh, restaurants seem to belong to the before times. Um. (laughs) They really do, don't they? (laughs) All right, well, let's say Capital Grill. All right, so are you a Capital Grill or are you a McDonald's? Those are both valid business models. But if somebody walks into Capital Grill and thinks they're going to get a burger, fries, and a drink for $6, that's just not going to happen. So you need to make sure that the clients that are coming in are a match to your firm, both in their expectations of service level and price and in the type of law. The first conversion, the first decision is to call you. The second decision is, are they a match or not? The third decision that gets made is by the potential client of, are they willing to set a sales call with you or not? And then the fourth decision is if they show up for that sales call. And I actually was kind of surprised by the numbers. Uh, It sounded like a lot of people just don't show up. Oh my gosh, you would not believe how many. It is really kind of shocking. But one of the things that helps is having a paid sales call. People tend to show up if you put a little bit of money on the line. And we're not saying charge them $5,000, charge them $100 to $500. And you do have the option of if they retain you, apply that towards their first bill or apply that towards their trust balance. And that gives them some skin in the game too. It gives them some skin in the game. So when we start looking at this and we start tracking all the way along the line, all the way through this process, we want to make sure that by the time someone gets in the room with whoever's doing that sales call, usually an attorney, that they have been vetted and primed. So even if you don't have great sales skills, you can still convert them. You can still get them to say yes. You can still get them to buy. And what we know is that if we're out there doing, okay, let's face it, everybody thinks pay-per-click is the solution to everything, which I don't believe that, but okay. Let's say you're doing a whole bunch of pay-per-click and your phone's not ringing. Well, your pay-per-click is wrong. Let's say you're doing a bunch of pay-per-click and your phone is ringing, but none of the clients are qualified. All right, somewhere along the way, the message is wrong in that pay-per-click. 
because you're attracting the wrong kind of client. Let's say they're calling, but they're not setting a sales call. Well, then you need to look at the experience that that potential client is having when they're contacting your firm for the first time. Are they not making an appointment because they can't get in to see you for six weeks? Okay, so if you've got a DUI, you really kind of need an attorney before six weeks. If you're talking about your will, you can wait six weeks. If you have some kind of hearing about child custody, you probably can't wait six weeks. So is it that? Is it the person booking the appointment is doesn't have sales skills because that person does need sales skills? You know, there are all kinds of things. But really hone in and find out why they're not booking a call because then you can fix it. This seems like a place where you could use kind of your own version of a mystery shopper and just ask someone, hey, could you try going through this? And can I just listen and hear what you're running into? Absolutely. The other thing you can do is record, check the laws of your state. I know I'm talking to a whole bunch of attorneys, (laughs) but in many states, it is fine to record one side of the conversation. Or if one person knows the call is being recorded, that's legal. So if you're in one of those states, you may just have that person who's making the appointments record their calls and listen to them and figure out what the problem is. Because you can tell a lot. And then the last one, and this is the one that totally gets me, is if people show up for the sales call or not. You know, 80% of the people who book a sales call should be showing up. And when they're not... I'm always kind of surprised. And, you know, we talked about having a paid sales call. But also, again, what is that potential client experience? In the book, I talk about going to see a practice in Pennsylvania. And I got there. And I found the building. And I walked up to the front door. And it was locked. I'm like, okay, what's going on? I look around. I check the address. I check my calendar. Please tell me I have not flown to Pennsylvania on the wrong day. Nope, it's supposed <laughs> to be there. I'm in the right place. It's all good. And I finally called. And they said, oh, go around the right side of the building, and you'll see a set of stairs, and go down those like three or four stairs, and then you'll see a door on the left. Come through there. Really Make it easy for the client. So um, we had a client in Dallas who had, I think, the best email ever for clients. It went out. It gave directions on how to get to their office from, like, two or three major roads. It gave pictures. There was a picture that said, park here. There was a picture that said, enter the building here. There was a picture that said, you know, once you get to the whatever floor, turn right and our office is here with a picture. It made it really super easy. Make it easy on your potential clients. Don't make them work to come see you. Oh, and I really like that because, you know, depending on what they're coming to see you for, lawyers usually aren't dealing with people who have low levels of anxiety and are dealing with very small amounts of stress. Yeah, I talked to a, a attorney once and she said something that I just love. When a client gets to a sales call, They are at their maximum point of pain. Mm. Whatever they're going through is so bad that they have actually made an appointment and come to see you. And by the time they leave, they will have given you all of their pain. You as their attorney are going to take on their problems. So that is their moment of maximum pain. I do like that. Don't don't add extra stress to people who are experiencing their maximum amount of pain. Yeah, don't don't increase the pain. They're not going to love you for it. No. 
Well, that brings us to number six of the six key numbers, which is case management. And, you know, I, as I was reading this chapter, you mentioned, you know, all lawyers think that each of their cases is special and unique. And it, that makes it so hard to keep track of each of their cases in, in one system. How could they possibly? So could you walk me through what you tell an attorney who's come to you about case management? I realize that every single case is different. I know that there are going to be different personalities. There are going to be different points of law. However, when we look at, for instance, a divorce, there are a few things that are always going to happen. Someone is always going to file. Someone is always going to have to respond. There will be interrogatories that will happen. There will be probably two preliminary hearings. The case will then go into a quiet period while everyone goes to their corner and the two principals continue to fight over children offline. And then you come back, you prep for mediation, and then you prep and go through a trial. Yes, a divorce with children is different than a divorce without children. But you can take cases and put them in buckets. And we work with firms that usually have pretty much niched down into one area of the law. So we'll work with, with firms that practice family law or firms that practice criminal law. Because, Lee, you do know, the riches are in the niches. We, you know, we, we've run quite a few stories about people who found that perfect niche in the law, and, and that's what's getting them cases, is that they are the ones who are the leaders in this small area. That's right. So when you're not practicing door law or threshold law, when you're actually practicing in one practice area, we find that there are about five or different buckets of cases. So divorce with children, divorce without children, modifications, adoptions, and, and they'll all kind of, it, it, it works for any firm. If it's a criminal firm, it's, you know, felony, it's misdemeanor, it's, you know, level three felony or whatever. I'm not as... But a bankruptcy firm, you know, it'll do bankruptcies for businesses, bankruptcies, you know, personal bankruptcies. And there's an 11, there's a seven, there's the new five. You kind of can, can put them in a bucket. And once you do that, and once you go through and randomly pull like 20 cases, and I would suggest that the attorney never does this, or the attorney pulls 20 names out of a hat. Because otherwise, if the attorney does it, they're like, well, not that one because it wasn't normal and not that one because it wasn't this. Take 20 cases and you're going to find some similarities. You're going to find that on average, if we take the length of time for all 20 and we average it, our case length is this long. If we look at how much was billed for those 20 cases, our average case value is this. And this is really important, and this is something that most people don't look at. How much pressure does the average case put on your team? So on an average case, how much attorney time, how much paralegal time, how much legal assistant time? If you've got a receptionist doing a whole lot, how much of their time does it take? Because once you do that, you start to define a team. And let's say your team is, well, it used to be a team was one attorney and two paralegals. With the advent of so much technology, it's kind of flipped. It's now two attorneys to one paralegal. But if you know that's true, 
and you know how many cases a team can handle, and you know what your case count is, and you know what the key number in this section is, net new cases. When you do that, you can start to look at everything that's going to happen in the future. You can not only look at net new cases and know what your revenue is going to be in two months, but you can start to look at net new cases and you can look at the trend of new cases and you can know when you're going to need to hire your next team member and who that team member needs to be. And that to me is really one of the places where you stop managing your firm in a reactive manner and you get to become proactive. And when you're proactive, you're making decisions before they're due. You know what's coming down the pike. You're able to see where you're going and what you're doing. You're able to plan. And when you have all of those things, it means that you're also able to go home at night and leave the office at the office. It means that you get to sleep through the night. It means that you're not up at 4 a.m. worrying about anything because you're proactive instead of reactive. When you work through this plan with your clients, what have you seen surprise them the most about doing this process? Oh, the fact that we can rewrite their fee agreement and bump their collection rate 15%. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, it's the easiest thing. The 2019 Legal Trend, Trends Report said that the average collection rate in the U.S. is 86%. And I got to tell you, I think they're on crack. So much lower. I think, and I've talked to so many other people who do kind of the same thing that we do, and we all agree that it's closer to 75%, maybe 80, but 86 is way optimistic. Well, and you point out, you're like, think about that, not just as, oh, 75%. Think of that as you and your team working for free for one week out of every month. That's right. You know, if you are collecting, I, I do it a lot of times at 80%. Because that means that you and your team are working four days a week. And on the fifth day, you're basically like pulling them in and holding them hostage in your office to no one's benefit. They would much rather work really hard the four days a week, have you collect all of it and have a three-day weekend. I mean, that sounds good to me. <laughs> I know. It's a much cushier job. Oh, And speaking of cushy jobs, you also have some advice in here for using the numbers to take a more clear-eyed look at your own employees and dealing with the people who really are more marginal members of your team. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I know that that's also very hard for some attorneys, particularly in small firms, to make the decision, do I need to replace this person? Yeah, it is. It's, it's hard, especially in a small firm, because you become more emotionally invested and you're a tighter-knit team. So it is hard to get rid of someone. But I want to go, and I know, Lee, you do not love the billable hour. I know you don't. It scares me. I'm a journalist. There's math. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing about the billable hour. I want to start with where it came from and what its intent was. So the guy who was running Boston Legal Aid, I don't know, 100 years ago, started the billable hour. And what he wanted to know was how much time each of his people was spending on a case. Were they being productive or not? Because how else do you manage attorneys? You can't say, oh, you have to finish one case a week. 
because cases don't, you can't schedule a case to finish every week. So we, we look at the billable hour and you say your goal is to bill, let's say, 30 hours a week, which is reasonable, right? Six hours a day, five days a week. No one's going to bill eight hours in eight hours because there is what I call frictional time loss. And that's when somebody gets up to go get a cup of coffee and then, you know, an hour later runs to the bathroom. There's the time it takes when you're wandering around going, I can't find this file. There's also the time where you hang up the phone with a client and you turn back around to that brief you've been working on. You're like, okay, now where was I? So, you know, we say to have a a healthy, you know, 40-ish hour a week culture in your firm, six hours a day is reasonable, 30 hours a week. If people can't get their 30 hours in, then it gives you the opportunity to dig down and and talk to them and find the root cause. And it comes from a couple of places. Sometimes it's they don't have the work. Okay, well, as a law firm owner, that's your problem. You need to figure out how to market and get more cases in. Sometimes it's they don't know how to do the work. So you've got a teaching and training opportunity. Sometimes it's because they write, they forgot to write down their hours and they didn't put them in the system anywhere. Okay, so that's a different teaching and training opportunity. And sometimes they just aren't working. They're watching, you know, cat videos on YouTube. So <laughs> it, it lets you look at your people in, in a way that's based on numbers and it takes the emotion out of it. Are they hitting this goal or not? Because especially in a, in a small firm, you're very likely to make excuses for people because you don't want to have those hard conversations. But if it's just about numbers, there's, there's nothing personal about it. Okay. Well, if my listeners are interested in checking out this book after they've heard our conversation, and I do encourage them to do this because we may have shared what the six key numbers are, but the book has a wealth of information a bunch of worksheets that you can use to, you know, examine your own personal situation. How can they pick up from panic to profit? The easiest way is to go to Amazon. We're on Amazon. We were a number one bestseller internationally, by the way. You can do that. Um, if you're having a hard time finding it on Amazon, you can go to our website, cathcap.com, C-A-T-H-C-A-P.com. And from there, there is a link to Amazon where you can buy the book. And Brooke, if you had an opportunity to speak directly to our listeners, what would you want their takeaway from our conversation to be? Really what I want them to take away from this is you're not alone. You are like, you know, the vast majority of attorneys in that you went to law school, all of a sudden you're running your own firm and you don't have the financial background to do that ask questions. Don't be afraid to raise your hand and say, I don't know something. Is your banker the right person to ask? Eh, probably not. Talk to your CPA, talk to your bookkeeper, call a company like ours, talk to a friend. You're not alone. Everyone struggles with this. Okay. And if you're struggling with this and want to read more of Brooke's advice, the book is From Panic to Profit, How Six Key Numbers Can Make a Six-Figure Difference in Your Law Firm by Brooke Lively. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, Lee. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, 
please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcast listening service.